Well, good morning. How are we doing? Awesome. I heard one awesome, so we'll go with that. So um, have you ever Googled yourself? Not like looked in the mirror and like, ooh, googly-eyed yourself, but Googled yourself. We live in a era of technology for sure, where information is at everybody's fingertips. And uh, you can Google yourself or not. You might not even find anything on yourself, especially if you have no social media. But this week, I've spent a lot of time on the internet um, researching stuff. I spent a lot of time, I was looking for some car parts. I was looking at future cars. I mean, it is easy to get information today. Um, how many of you, when you go for your source of information, go to social media? Nobody. All right, a couple of y'all. The rest of you, I'll see you up front, repentance. You know, um, maybe, maybe you're not that way. Um, but a lot, that is actually like the source of news for so many people today is going to Facebook or going to Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's so much stuff out there. And so what I've become through this abundance of information is a modern day skeptic. I, I just don't believe a lot of stuff. Even now where they say it used to be seeing is believing, like I'll believe it when I see it, but we are in an era of technology to where they can even mess with what you see. It's called deep faking, where they take somebody's face and their voice and they have them say something that they never actually said. It's all AI driven. And so I am a modern day skeptic because there's a lot of things that you'll look up and you'll read it and you'll be like, hey, that guy, he seems to know what he's talking about. Like I've, I've thought about swapping out engines before and I'm like, I'll just talk to YouTube about it. And so I'll get on there and this guy's saying stuff and it's like, he seems to be making sense. He seems to know his stuff, but he keeps calling this thing a thingamajiggy or, you know, that over there or stuff like that. And so it's like, I don't really believe him. Where we are in this era of abundance of information, but can you believe it? Because you see, it's one thing to know about something. It's an entirely different thing to know how to do that thing. Like just having information about it is not always meaning that you are able to carry it out. So for example, um, Isaiah he has this word to the people of Israel. They're already in exile, or no, they're not. They, they are getting ready to go into exile because they've just been rebelling against God. And Isaiah has a word to them in Isaiah chapter 29 where he says, you know about this thing, but you don't really know it. It has not come into your hearts. It is something that is taught down by men, but when it comes to actually knowing how to carry it out, you don't know. Isaiah chapter 29, starting in verse 13, it says, The Lord said, Because this people, they draw near me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. Jesus ends up quoting that in the book of Luke. Yet their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That they're told to fear God, but they really don't know what that entails. They don't know how to do it. And so he says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. They had learned the fear of the Lord. It had worked its way down to them to where they were taught, you need to fear God, but there was no application 
in it. And so God's saying, you know, they come and they give me outward lip service. They come and they sing the praises and they do the Christian jargon and they live the whole uh, religious services. But it's all outward stuff. Jesus goes on to really say this about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. You are beautiful on the outside, but he says inside you are full of decay and death. And what we see as we are getting ready to enter into, we're going to be in the book of First and Second Kings this morning. And as we're in those books, we are seeing this decay among the people of Israel where they are having this religious fear of the Lord. They're doing the religious service, but what Isaiah is telling them is you're honoring God with your lips, you're honoring him with your mouths, but you are not serving him with your heart. And what you're going to see as you read First and Second Kings is this drift away from God to where eventually the both nations because they get divided in the book of kings and so you have the north kingdom of israel the south kingdom of judah and in 722 the north kingdom gets exiled they get defeated by the assyrian army and then about 120 years later 140 years later in 586 bc the southern kingdom of judah gets exiled because god kept warning them over and over he said obey me don't, don't just give me lip service, but actually give me your heart. Because what we've seen is in Samuel, you see the kingdom being established with a king. They went from Samuel being the judge over them to Saul being anointed as king over them. And then he kind of turns his heart against God. So then David comes in and we're told he is a man after God's own heart and he leads them. In a great time, you talk to Israelites today and a lot of them will recognize, history recognizes, even secular writings recognize David is probably the greatest king that Israel has had. And then Solomon comes up behind him and probably has the most peaceful uh, reign that Israel sees because it says everybody had everything they needed, everybody owned a garden, everybody owned a house, they were at a time of peace. But then... We get this sad shift in 1 Kings chapter 11, where Solomon, he wrote about Proverbs, and he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He said, avoid the adulterous woman. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, you get this. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. If they were from another nation, he loved them. It said, from nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, this is the command from God, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father, true the Lord his God. Or, sorry, repeat. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. This is the same guy that penned these words in Proverbs. He said, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And then skipping down to verse 16, he says, and you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So we are seeing that Solomon is saying this, and then later on in his life, he steps away from it. He's no longer living in the fear of the Lord. He's going after these foreign women and we see from that moment the downfall of the nation of Israel, covered in the book of First and Second Kings. So we're going to get into that. If you'll join me, we'll open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our passage. So Father God, we just thank you that we are able to gather together again this morning. God, I pray that we come with a heart eager to hear what you have to say. God, that we come and just open ourselves up to you and your word. That it not be my word, but that it be your word proclaimed. That they see nothing but the power of Christ and him crucified. And God, that we hear and we respond in faith to what you are calling us to do and who you are calling us to be. So God, we need you in this moment. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So if you notice in your bulletin, there's two inserts. One is this little uh, chart of all the kings of Judah and all the kings of Israel. And it's color coded. And that just tells you kind of this is the chronology of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And if it's red, it means they're a bad king. If it's green, it means they were a good king. If it starts out one color and shifts to another, it means they started out pretty good and they ended up being bad, kind of like Solomon. He started out doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then at the end, we just read, he did what was evil and vice versa. And then it also tells you the prophets in an estimation on when they prophesied. And so I would encourage you, slide that in your Bible, because for the rest of these, this series, for the rest of the year, we're going to kind of be coming back to that. Because when you read the prophets, a lot of it is like, <laughs> I have no idea what they're talking about. But when you understand the context, because again, our Bible's not chronologically written. You get to kings, and then all of a sudden, a lot of the prophets are taking place during the events of the kings, and then you start to kind of understand what they're talking about, what Isaiah means when he's saying stuff, what Jeremiah is talking about, and all those little itty-bitty minor prophets as well. And so I would say just hold on to that one because it's something that I use a lot to refer to kind of context on everything. But we're going to dive into First and Second Kings. So if you like your inserts, go ahead and fill them out. The name of it is Kings. 
and it is named because of the reigns of the kings. And as we mentioned, it ends up getting divided. And so you have the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south. They were originally one book. That's why I'm referring to them as kings. It wasn't first and second kings. It was just the book of kings, kind of like it wasn't first and second Samuel. It was just Samuel. And the kings are a continuation of the story of Samuel or the accounts of Samuel. And really, they split it not for any reason other than imagine back in the day, it was a scroll. And so they had to keep unraveling the scroll. And so they were like, we got to make this two. And so they pretty much split it down the middle. That is why it is two books today, first and second Kings. The parallel book is second Chronicles. The accounts of Second Chronicles are really going to run parallel to the accounts of First or of First and Second Kings, with a little bit more information in it. And so, again, we have that both were written historically, kind of like Samuel. It's historically written, but there are theological lessons for us to learn. Specifically, the one that we see in Kings is what happens when you step outside the will of God. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God promises there will be a blessing if you obey, there will be curses if you disobey, and in kings, they continually step outside the will of God, and we see gradually these curses coming upon them. The main theme, what we see is the faithfulness of God to his word. A lot of times we like to think, well, God is faithful to his people. He is but what we see also in Deuteronomy is God's going to be faithful to his word. That when God promises a blessing for obedience, he means it. But the opposite is also true. That when God says, if you step outside of my will, it will go bad for you, I mean it. There is a curse for those who disobey me. Ultimately, it's, it's kind of like people today are like, you know what, we believe in a heaven, but there is no hell. And it's like God didn't go back on his word. He is faithful to what he says, that there is a wrath to be poured out on sin and those who are slaves to it, but God gave us grace and gave us redemption through the blood of Jesus so that we don't have to face it, but yet it's still true. Jesus didn't get rid of hell. It was made for Satan and all of his demons, but at the same time, if you reject God, and you reject the free gift that God is offering to you, he is faithful to his word. And there is that wrath to pay. So it is a theme of God's faithfulness to his word. The author, we don't really know who wrote it, but ancient Jews ascribe it to Jeremiah. The dates, it really spans a long period. It spans, we open up in 1 Kings with the death of David and then Solomon taking over the throne and it goes all the way to the fall of Judah. And, and in 2 Chronicles, you get this little caveat of, I think it's chapter 34, where Cyrus comes back and he makes the proclamation as a fulfillment of prophecy in Jeremiah and Isaiah, where 200 years prior, they prophesied Cyrus by name is going to bring my people back to Jerusalem. And so in the book of Chronicles, we get that added in there. The main people in it, there's that timeline that I gave you, that little chart of it all. But what we see is the breakdown, that Judah had 20 kings. 
I almost feel like the 12 men that went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good. Kind of like Judah had 20 kings, five were good, three started good, but ended evil. One started, e anyways, you have a breakdown. Five were good. Eight overall had good aspects to them. But again, we're seeing that breakdown as the people start drifting away from God. Now that's Judah. That's covering over a period of roughly 350 years where they had one, we're going to call it a dynasty. Because we're told Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the ancestor of Judah, or is it ancestor? He is the descendants of Judah. And so they keep one pure genealogy. Every king of Judah is from the line of David. But then you get to Israel. The northern kingdom makes up 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, where you had 19 kings, and pretty much every single one of them was evil. Now, there is one guy in there who it says he started good, but then he ended up drifting completely away from God. This is over a period almost half that of the first one. So you got 350 years for 20 kings because things are going pretty well. In Israel, you have 19 kings in about 210 years, and you have nine different dynasties. What that means is this guy comes in and assassinates and somebody else takes the throne. It's not a pure bloodline over Israel. It is a change of the guard over and over nine different times in 19 kings. And then also you have Elijah and Elisha, those are two of the main prophets that you're going to read about from 1 Kings about chapter 17 all the way to 2 Kings chapter 6. There's this chunk of change put in there that is dedicated to Elijah and Elisha. You got some of the main events in your handout. We won't cover those. You can read them. But the outline of the book, you can divide it into roughly three parts. You have the united monarchy. This is the time under David and Solomon, where they are one nation. And then Solomon fathers Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is taking over the throne, and he goes to his older, because the people are coming to him, and they're like, hey, will, he, will you lighten the yoke on us, the yoke on us? And so he goes to Solomon's wise men, and he says, what do you say I should do? And they say, well, you should care for your people, and they will be faithful to you. And then he says, nah, I don't like what you're saying. I'm going to go to my pals, my buddies, my, my peers, and I'm going to ask them. And they're like, rule with an iron fist. You lay down the hammer on them. And he's like, yeah, I like that. And then we get this split because of that. So you get Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and then you get a period of a divided monarchy all the way until about 722 B.C. when Israel falls to the Assyrian army. And then the rest of the time, you have a surviving kingdom, that being the kingdom of Judah, until they are finally overthrown by good old Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar, and taken into, and then you get the accounts of Daniel and that kind of stuff. Then you got two typologies. You have Solomon, in which kind of like David, the king, we're, we're comparing Jesus and Solomon. You see a lot of comparisons there. And then the other one is in Elijah. So much so that the Jews during Jesus' time were like, are you Elijah reincarnated? And Jesus is like, no, it's not me. But yet John the Baptist is the one that I said there is going to be one coming like Elijah who is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And that was John the Baptist. So they confused Jesus with Elijah. And then this is where we're going to focus 
The main phrase that you see in every evil king and some of the good ones, this is found in 1 Kings 15, 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Throughout this entire book, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you see this repeated over and over. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Even when there's a good king, you always have this little disclaimer that is sad. Where it says, for example, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 3 through 4. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All right, kudos to him. He did what was right. According to all, the fa- all that his father Amaziah had done, nevertheless, never a good thing when they throw that in there. It's like the complimentary sandwich, like you're looking good, but your breast smells terrible. It's like he did what was good in the eyes of the Lord, but man messed it up. Because he goes on to say, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The high places were where they went to worship and offer sacrifices where God says, no, you will worship me in the temple. And they're like, no, we're going to worship over here and over there. And we're going to worship at all these high places. They were still disobeying God. They were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Does that sound familiar? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you remember and were paying attention, key part, uh, in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it ended with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were supposed to be ruled by God. They said, we don't want to be ruled by God. We want to be like every other nation. So make us have a king, all right? Well, he's going to guide you. And the king was supposed to also be kind of the priest and to lead them. And now we're here where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, which is what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. To follow your own will and not the will of God is evil in the sight of the Lord. That we are told to follow him. And as I'm looking through this and I'm reading through Kings, Does it strike an accord with anybody? Like, pull out a newspaper, pull out kings, and you're pretty much reading the same thing. Where we have people in leadership who are doing whatever they want. And I'm not just even talking about all the way up. I'm talking about parents. I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about pastors. I'm talking about political leaders. I'm talking about people who are doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. People who are seeing that there is life and they're saying, you know what? Not only do we think even when, and I don't believe this at all, but you know what? If, if, if you don't have God and somebody says it's just a clump of cells, that's harder to argue with. I do not believe that at all. But when this thing has a heart thing, this baby has a heartbeat when it has eyes, when it has hands, when it reacts to stimulant, and people are like, you know what, let's still just kill that for the the, uh, help of the mother so that she can live a good life. That's pretty evil. That Jesus says to stand up for the rights of the fatherless, to help the widows and the orphans, to defend the weak and those in need. And yet we have people who are saying, you know what, nope, just murder them all. And they'll even say it's murder, but they don't care. We have people who are saying that a guy can somehow become a woman. 
that God made this thing sacred of marriage, that he said, I created the man and woman, and they are image bearers of God. And we're like, well, God made a mistake whenever he made me, and so I really belong in the other body. And there are people in the church who are saying, yep, go for it. Love is love. Love whoever you want to love. And the church is like, we can't say anything about that. Like, we just got to let them do whatever they want. Because who are we to tell people what they should do? I'll answer that. You're nobody. You are the messenger of God, though. That God has entrusted you with his message to speak truth to these people. And so we answer the call. That when these people are doing what is right in their own eyes, doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, we are called to be the prophets of today and not like a prophet where like God told me to speak on his behalf. That's not part of the Bible, but to speak God's word to them. That we speak out. Because when I read Kings, I see what is going on and I see it in today's world. And here's the big thing that hurts. These people claim to know God. That when you talk to the people in Kings, because, you know, sit down and have coffee with them and everything, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I believe in God. I believe he loves me. I believe he's for us, that he is encouraging us, and he is happy with how we're doing. And it's like, whoa, hold on now. God actually gave you his word. It's like, I keep saying this, it's funny, if only God would have, like, written down what he wants for us to do. That would make life so much easier. He did. And his word tells us. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, he says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, and you are careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord. God is saying, if you live for me, if you live in the fear of the Lord, if you make me God and you obey what I have to say, it will be well for you. And he goes on to list blessings. Your crops will grow. Your families will be abundant. You will be at peace. Things will go well for you. But then he goes to verse 15. And he says, if you do not Obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today. Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he starts listing curses. He's like, if you don't listen, then your crops will die. If you don't listen, famine will come upon you. If you still don't listen, I will send an army to attack you. If you still don't listen, they won't only attack you, they will take you away. If you still don't listen, you'll eat your own children. Literally. Because you will be so hungry because of the pain that comes upon you. And you get to that point and it's like, wow, God, that's pretty harsh. And it's like, how many times before that did God say, listen to me, turn around, repent and come back to me. And so it wasn't because of how harsh God is. It's because of the rebellion of the people. And so what we see is that God has given us his will and I wholeheartedly believe that if you are claiming to be a child of God, you are called to live in that will, to live in the fear of the Lord, because the people of Israel did not have the fear of the Lord, and so they did not obey him. 
Because in Malachi chapter 1, these are the last words. So we're going to get there eventually. But Israel goes into exile. They end up getting returned to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're able to build the wall, build the temple. And then you have this period of silence before Jesus, about four to 500 years. Right before that period of silence, Malachi speaks. And God writes to the people of Israel. And he opens it up and he says, man, you guys. I loved you. But then he gets to business. Verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Like, you respect your boss. You might not like him, but you at least give your boss what they are due. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? Oh, priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor and see if he will accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God is furious with Israel because they think we're right with God. We're bringing a sacrifice to him. Yeah, it can't walk and it's blind and it's disgusting and it's maggoted, but we're bringing it to him. We're not going to give him our best. We'll give him our worst. And it's like, yeah, today, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to church and I'm giving and it's whatever religious thing you think is making you right with God. And it's like, I give him Sunday mornings and that's it. The rest of the week, I'll drink, I'll sleep around. I'll, I'll do all that stuff that God says we died to. And yet I'm still gonna claim to be born again with Christ while living in my old self. And Malachi is like, whoa, like God actually says, Somebody, please just shut the doors. Don't even let them come worship me because they're doing it in vain. You see, they're not being fully obedient to God, which he is calling for. To them, they're like, hey, we're obeying God. We're giving him our stuff. We're giving him what he asked for. God asked for the best. He said, give me your first fruits. Give me the one without, imperfe without imperfection. And yet they are belittling it. And they're saying, you know what, we'll, we'll just give God a little bit of the leftovers. You see, so many people today are claiming to walk with God. And yet they are not living in obedience to God. They are claiming to be in this relationship with God. And yet not living for God in any way other than they might grace his people once in a blue moon. That there's no life change. There's no giving of surrender over to God. There is just this, well, I, I kind of do the religious thing every now and then, and that makes us good. What God desires is for you to live obediently to him. The, the American church has watered it down so much. 
that, that to be saved, this is what it is to be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's it. But James tells us that when we are saved, when we have faith, it comes with life change. Read any of the, go- or not the gospels, the apostles, not apostles, epistles, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, every single one of them talks about this is who you were, this is how you lived, but now you don't live that way anymore. You have been set apart. That the fear of the Lord is the same thing today that it was all the way back then. That you are living to please God. That you are obedient to him. That what he says goes. I want to clarify real quick that I'm not talking about struggles with sin. Because for me to stand up here and say I live in the fear of the Lord and so I don't struggle with sin anymore is not true. But I have found this trick that has really helped me lately. As I've grown in my knowledge of the fear of the Lord and my desire to walk with him is, y'all realize God can see everything? That, that he talks about in the prophets, these people, they think that what they do in the secret, I don't see. I see it all. And there are literally times in my mind where it's like, nobody knows I'm about to, oh, God's watching me right now. He knows. And I'm not living for your guys' pleasure anymore or your guys' approval any, anymore. Keyword, used to, not anymore. I'm living for God's approval. And it changes everything. That it is not whether it benefits me or not, because here's the compromise so many people make. Because I'll admit, I know that it's a sin. I knew what I was doing was sin when I would give in to it. I always compromised. I hear it all the time when people know what God's word says and they're like, yeah, and they compromise on it. Yeah, but I have to do this because it's the only way we can make ends meet. I have to do this because it's the only fair option. I have to do this because everybody else is doing it. Whatever follows by I have to do this when it is walking away from God's word says you are trusting in what you believe and what society believes more than what God says. That you are compromising in that area. That you're saying, God, I know your word says, just for example, do not let the marriage bed be defiled. Yeah, but God, that's old. Everybody else is doing it. I mean, really, you expect me to adhere to that? You got to test drive before you buy, right? I mean, that kind of thing. And it's like, hold on. God says this. God knows this. God means this because God is faithful to his word. He knows what he says and he means what he says. And so what we have to do is say, God, I know culture's going that way. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to set myself apart. That's what it means to be holy. I'm going to live for you, not for the way of this world. Because when we go that way, we say, God, your way is not best. And I know better than you. And so I'm not going to listen to you. Let me tell you this. Revolutionary stuff here. God's way is always best. No matter what. His way is always best. It's like, uh, for example, um, I build stuff and it's, you're always given directions. And then it's like, I don't need to read those directions. I saw the picture. I can assemble it. And then you're done. And it's like, uh, there's like 30 leftover bolts and screws. They're not important. I don't need those. 
And next thing you know, it breaks. That's what we do when we take God's word and we're like, I don't need that. I saw the end result. I, I know what it looks like. And then next thing we know, we're broken. Just like that stuff that we decide we don't need to read the instructions for. Those instructions were written because the person that developed that knew what was best. God has given us his word to follow and obey because he knows what is best. Because if you don't, look at Israel and Judah in the book of Kings. They stepped away from God and his will. They stepped outside of his plan for them, and they became extremely broken. So broken that it actually came to the point where they were eating their own children. They had to kill their children just so they had something to eat because they kept stepping outside of God's will. And it was not just one moment. It took 210 years of them stepping away. And then even for Judah, they saw Israel be exiled by the Assyrian army, and yet they still were like, eh, we're better than that. We don't need to learn from that. So they kept step by step stepping away from God. It's like the example, I've used it one time before, husband and wife driving in a car, and the wife, you know, big old bench seat, wife sitting right next to the guy. And they're cruising along, and then as time passes by, she's a little further, and next thing she knows, she's all the way at the window. And she looks over to him and she's like, what, what happened to us? We used to be right next to each other. And he turned to her and he said, honey, I haven't gone anywhere. You gradually drifted away from me. We are gradually, if we do not check our hearts and make sure we are in the will of God and living in the fear of him, we will step away from God. And it's one step at a time to where eventually you are broken and it's like, how did we get here? How did this happen? And then you turn around and you look and it's like, oh, wait, I compromised there. And then I compromised on that compromise. And then I compromised on that. And eventually this is where I got. You see, Israel experienced brokenness. And so many people in today's world are experiencing brokenness. Like true brokenness. Because they are stepping outside of the will of God. And God gives these blesses and these cursings. And he says, if you don't obey, then curses are going to come. But then he also did something else. Where he didn't say, y'all start working on yourself, mend your own brokenness, and then I'll come and help you. But like Doug told us, while we were still sinners at the right time, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, he sent Jesus to come and heal our brokenness. That's where you see Jesus in the book of Kings. That as they're drifting away from God, Jesus comes to be healing for the broken hearted. This is the story of history. That all this Old Testament is pointing to the day that Jesus came and he said, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, I make all things new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Your brokenness has been healed. That we're told in Romans chapter 5, this is later on, verse 12. It says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. That's the brokenness that we all have. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul's showing us that brokenness that came through Adam, but we can't even blame Adam because he says all have sinned. And therefore, it is a total brokenness, a total separation from God, a eternal death where Revelation tells us everybody's going to wish that they could die, but they're not going to be able to die. They're going to cry out for the rocks to fall on them, but that won't happen. And yet, that's what eternal hell is. A longing to die and never being able to. It's going to be so many more. That is just it in a nutshell real quick. But then Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, but, so death came through Adam, has reigned through all men, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sins. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make us righteous, to justify us before God, to bring healing to the brokenness. The psalmist in Psalm 147 tells us that. Verse 3, he says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Verse 11 goes on to say, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, who hope in His steadfast love. If you want to find healing in Jesus, walk in the fear of the Lord. See that his word is right. His word is true. And start living according to it. Giving your life over to him saying, God, I don't have the answers. I don't know it all. You do. Peter said in John chapter 6, verse 68 through 69, when Jesus turns and says, are, are y'all going to leave me too? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I've tried living the way of this world, and I've seen that it brings nothing but heartache. I've clung to the promises of Jesus, and I have found that there is joy in them. Surrender your life over to him. Live in the fear of the Lord. That's what Solomon says. At the end of Ecclesiastes, he says the sum of the matter is at hand. Fear God and obey his commandments. And when you do that, you find healing. You find that healing has come when you give your heart over to God. It's not to find salvation. I want to make that clear. It's not you do all this stuff and then maybe someday you'll please God enough that he gives you salvation. It is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you walk in that. You die to the life that you live. You be raised new to life in Christ. And you walk in that newness of life. And Jesus promises healing will come upon you. Now there might still be consequences and fallout. But God.
God will work through you and God will get you through that. So much so, I'll close with this, that what Paul said in Philippians chapter four, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me right before that. He said, I know what it is like to be in want and in need, to be hungry and to be well-fed. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. That because I have found healing in him, even when there's fallout from the ways of this world, God will get me through this until the day when he calls us home. And in Revelation 21, three through four, it tells us that the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no more pain, no more mourning, no more sorrow for the former things have passed away and we will be glorified in our new bodies and reign with God forever. But it starts now. Live for him here and now. Father God, thank you. Again, I, I just always want to say thank you because, God, it's all based on the work that you have done. But, God, you are calling your people to live for you. And so I just pray, God, if there be any hearts here today that are honoring you with their lips and their mouth, but their heart is far from you and they are still living according to their own way, God, send your spirit to convict them. Let it be you that speaks to their hearts and let them hear who you are and therefore surrender everything over to you and walk in your way. And God, I pray that we just be encouraged to live for you, to walk in the fear of the Lord and to keep your commandments because of who you are and what you've done for us. And so God, again, I just entrust it all over to you that you're doing the work. Just help whoever you're speaking to, to respond to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this, amen.